This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Aloha, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Jeremy Vaney, and I am not Whitley Strieber. However, I will be your host of Dreamland once a month from here until eternity or until Whitley gets sick of my impression of him and then it's over. Uh, (laughs) But a little about me in case you're not familiar and in case you missed the announcement um, when I was a guest on his show, I think probably last week. We recorded it earlier, but I think it was on last week. Um, So... uh, People from UnknownCountry.com already know me. If you're a subscriber, you uh, know my show, The Experience. Well, I'm taking my know-how and bringing it to Dreamland. Um, prior to that, I, I've hosted, uh, well, in total, I think 10 podcasts. I think I'm James Brown of podcasting, the hardest working man in podcasting. Uh, probably the most famous of those was Paratopia with Jeff Ritzman. Um, I bring that up because at least one future guest has already uh, will have already mentioned it. I don't want it to be like, what's he talking about, Paratopia? It's this podcast I hosted with Jeff Ritzman. Um, so maybe you know me from there. Maybe you don't know me at all. Uh, what you should know is that I'm not Whitley Strieber, uh, but we love each other anyway. It's amazing what happens when you're not a narcissist. <laughs> I have a sense of humor and I'm going to use it, folks, but don't let that fool you. Um, I will also be having serious discussions. And what I see my job as here is obviously not trying to mimic him. Who can imitate Whitley Strieber? Not me. Um, But as I talked about on that episode I did with him, if you missed it, uh, I see this as an opportunity to expose you to new voices, um, expose a large audience to new voices who have a lot of unique and interesting things to say about all sorts of topics in these realms, obviously. Paranormal, ufological, um, you know, ancient, alienish, dare I say, I might not dare say. That brings us to our first guest today, uh, who is Alicia Puglionisi. She describes herself as... Uh, one who studies the history of knowledge-making and mystery in the human sciences. Her latest book is uh, In Whose Ruins, Power, Possession, and the Landscapes of American Empire, which examines four sites of resource extraction that also yielded scientific and spiritual narratives core to U.S. settler colonialism. That's a mouthful. Um, And then for subscribers, in the latter half of the program, we're going to be talking about Common Phantoms, an American history of psychic science, which was her uh, first book. So these books are connected. We're going to get into that. Now, I believe that the important thing at this point in our history with these here phenomena, and especially for me as an experiencer myself, is not just to explore the topics and the ways that we're comfortable with and that have become uh, rote to us or become the thing that we are all in agreement on, Um, but to really shine a light on the dark recesses uh, of our own consciousness and our cultural consciousness to expose ourselves to ourselves. Because as we're talking about an enigmatic other, an alien, a ghost, or whatever, as we're trying to you know, ask ourselves about these other, what are these other beings? How can we ask that if we don't know ourselves? And so part of knowing ourselves is, again, dealing with uncomfortable things. And I say that because we're going to start that off right here. Um, Though this is not a political show per se, I think politics come from the inside out and inform the world. And so um, they are an issue of the internal as well as, the thing that you want to ignore at dinner parties and probably on paranormal podcasts. But we can't ignore it when it comes to, for instance, uh, the topics that we're going to be speaking about today. Maybe not surprisingly, um, you know, First Nations structures in what we now call America, you know, their origin stories, which involve racism and, uh, you know, corporate greed, funny enough, but also... Who knew that this rears its head in the psychic research of the 1800s? Hmm? So 
I am thrilled that a historian is coming on to speak to us about this stuff. Um, I'm thrilled whenever somebody comes on anything I do, um, when they're like either nervous about it. I don't think she was nervous about it, but it's if it's not in their wheelhouse. And I think this is not necessarily, Dreamland is not necessarily, or hasn't been at least in her wheelhouse. And so she didn't know what to expect and she did the show anyway. And you'll find that with our next guest next month as well. You know, someone who is sort of hesitant, but is willing to come on anyway. And I think, I don't know, when that happens to me, it's kind of magical. And I, I feel grateful to have this opportunity to bring these people to Dreamland and for them to trust me to do that and for Whitley to trust me to do this. So thank you, Whitley. I'll try to do right by you. That, that's the best I can do, really. Um, I hope you all find this as fascinating as I do. Free Dreamlanders, we will pick it up with Alicia Pulianisi right after these messages. Have you ever read Communion? Or have you never read Communion? It's out in a new edition. Very powerful, a subtly new cover that reflects the fact that the visitors are now looking back at us because they truly are. You can get it from the unknowncountry.com store as a Kindle, as a beautiful, sumptuous paperback, or as an unabridged audiobook read by me. It's the first time in the whole life of communion that it has been read in full, in audio format, and believe you me, I felt that reading. I put my life, my memories, into it, and I trust you can hear it in the voice. I sure felt it while I was reading. So get communion, listen to it, read it. Communion is of central importance to all of our lives. It was the quietest, loveliest evening you could imagine. suddenly uh, a group of them are coming toward him and he gets taken outside to the back porch where he's placed on this cot that then takes him out to a clearing in the woods i remember sitting in a circle in the woods in the snow and then i suddenly went up in the air I felt like when you're going up in a fast elevator, I felt my stomach went le left behind and I see the trees going by and then I see the clouds. Then I'm in a little room just like that. It's frightening being completely conscious, not having control of your body, and then being shot up into some kind of ship or room. It smells like trees in here. It's not kind of shoot, tell you the truth. It's not clean in here. And I kept trying to wake up because I obviously was not in bed. You know, it had to be a nightmare, right? And uh, I realized these creatures were there. They were funny looking. They were like the workers. And then there was this willowy kind of taller being with the great big black eyes who was the leader it felt like a woman to me I see the head really clearly 
she says, yes, I know. Look at her. Real close. She put your cheek up by my face. What do you mean, an operation? I'm not going to let you do an operation on me. You have absolutely no right. She says, we do have a right. I kept trying to wake up because I thought I was having a nightmare. I'm getting real scared again. Real scared. Because I cannot do a thing about this. Could let me smell you. I wanted to smell him because I wanted to, I was trying to get some way of telling whether or not this was real. So this one puts his hand up against my face and it smelled like cinnamon. The smell of cinnamon was grounding in one sense. It made me think that I was in a real situation. In another sense, it was extremely disturbing for the same reason. The real situation I was in was very weird and very provocative with two different kinds of extremely strange-looking creatures, and I was physically helpless and couldn't get away. That's when they start to perform experiments on his body. Blue ones open a box and show me this needle and they're gonna put the needle in my head. I, how I know that, I don't know, but I do. And I start to say, you're going to ruin a beautiful mind. But they put the needle in the side of my head anyway. It makes a cracking sound, but there's no pain. I thought they were gonna cut my whole head open. for coming on and thank you for, for for doing this with me yeah thanks for inviting me so we're gonna concentrate here uh for a while on your new book in whose ruins power possession and the landscapes of american empire and uh i'm going to ask you a question that you're probably sick of but i know the answer and it ties into your first book and so i think it's a great bit which is why did you what is the book and uh, what led you to write it? Yeah, uh, I do have an answer for that <laughs> uh, <laughs> because it is uh, it is definitely the first question. Uh, so my first book, which grew out of my PhD research, was about psychical research in parapsychology. And so I had done a lot of you know, archival research and put together what I thought was a very interesting story. Uh, but as it always happens with that kind of thing, there was one piece that kind of needed to be its own separate thing. And it was a piece where it, it was just something that I stumbled upon in the archive. Uh, a woman had written a letter to the American Society of Psychical Research in, you know, 1890 something about an experience that she had while visiting the Miamisburg Mound in Ohio. And she describes having this uh, clairvoyant vision of, but rather than seeing into the future, she claims to have seen into the past and to have seen indigenous people constructing that mound. And I read that letter and uh, the Psychical Research Society then sent it to all these archaeologists and they kind of laughed at it. Um, but it was really interesting to me as an ordinary person's intervention into uh, a very live archaeological debate about the North American past. Uh, and so there was just so much context to it. And I recognized when I saw that it was about uh, an indigenous mound. I recognized from you know previous stuff that I had read that there might the mound builder myth might be in play there, and I'm sure we'll talk about that later. Um, but I was surprised that rather than positing a race of mound builders 
who were non-Indigenous, uh, were not Native American, this woman did say that Native American people had built the mound. And so that was like an unexpected thing, given how widespread these alternative history beliefs were at that time uh, and continue to be. So that just opened up all of this stuff. See, it's like taking me so long to explain it <laughs> that I was yeah. like, yes, this needs to be its own book. Um, and so I you know, wrote a chapter about that, about the attempt to relate to and understand the past of the land through uh, psychic or clairvoyant means. And then I started thinking about uh, land as a resource, because of course this is all happening in the context of uh, US expansion and colonialism moving west across the continent. And so the political situation is very important and shaping people's experiences and beliefs. And so looking at land as a resource and land as power led me to look at these other examples of quote unquote natural resources that take on their meaning, significance um, and potency through a combination of like technology, uh, you know, burning oil in a combustion engine but also through spiritual beliefs and practices that infuse it with a particular kind of ideology. Uh, so that's kind of led me, it led me to look at how spirituality played into other moments of resource extraction, such as the first uh, oil boom in the United States and the building of hydroelectric dams and ultimately uh, the nuclear economy in the U.S. Southwest. Is it, I don't know, par for the course for you, or is it disappointing in some way that, uh, you know, as you're doing sort of psychical research and you're seeing links to racism and resources uh, exploitation, that you then link onto this and you see, oh, this is the same story playing out in these topics that seem seemingly shouldn't have anything to do with that. Um, but America has a lot to do with that in general. So, for you as a historian, are you just like, well, that's par for the course, or are you like, wow, this is really odd? I think that there's always sort of a story beneath the story uh, in terms of kind of nationalistic narratives uh, of expansion of, you know, a resource boom. And so as a historian, you're always looking for that. Uh, you're looking to piece together the political, social, uh, and religious context. And so it's not surprising that that would all be there under the surface. And we definitely like experience a lot of it unquestioningly in our own daily lives, and it continues to resurface all the time. Uh, so it's about kind of interrogating those commonplaces and asking how these common sense ideas came about and were constructed. Um, but there are some things that I was genuinely not expecting. You know, I was not expecting necessarily to find psychic mediums prospecting for oil uh, from the very beginning of the oil boom. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, once I read more about it, I was like, oh, of course, looking for things underground, uh, of course, that's connected to that long history of dowsing and other kinds of water witching. It's just oil instead of water. Uh, but it is it is nice to be surprised by things like that. So in the book, you concentrate on four sites um, in New Mexico, Maryland, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia. So what is it about these places over any other others that leaped out at you as the ones to form the book around? That is a good question and something that uh, was difficult to get into a book proposal. There's kind of an there's kind of uh, a chance quality to some of it. Like these are by no means the most representative places to look to uh, for any of these resource histories. They're just places where I felt like a story kind of came together or emerged out of the intersection of things that were happening there. Uh, and I have an affinity for the 
things that are subtle, not obvious, uh, not necessarily famous or well-known. Uh, and that, it, you know, there's a element of chance or uh, coincidence about it, I guess. Hmm. And some of it is me, per you know, where I happen to go personally, like I live in Maryland. And so I've, I came to really appreciate the Conowingo Dam uh, because I would cross it all the time uh, going up to Philadelphia and back. And so I first was very interested in the dam. And so I wanted to learn more about its history. And then I learned about these petroglyphs. And so there's always a story uh, that you can put together when you find these intersections. Hmm. Is, uh, maybe I'm jumping the gun here, but it, why not? Is is there um, a difference in the type of story that comes together around a dam or a water resource as opposed to oil or anything else? I mean, do they all have sort of, how do these stories come about in these different locations? Yeah, I think they are different and similar. And that's one thing that plays out across the book, at least I hope, that a, a sort of resource excitement sets into motion a lot of similar forces. So it can set into motion migration, people moving to the site of a resource. And so we see that with oil and we see that with the nuclear industry, uh, you know, in different ways and different demographics. Uh, but also ideology becomes mobilized and it's like oil became enlisted into narratives of American destiny and so did hydroelectricity and so did nuclear. Uh, and so culture kind of culture and spiritual practices kind of like produce uh, like justifications or ways sense making ways of understanding what it means that we're doing this. And especially with something like nuclear uh, weapons and nuclear power that people quickly understood to be uh, playing with really dangerous forces, uh, you, you really need like a strong narrative uh, of like why this is good and necessary. Hmm. So uh, in terms of how the stories come together and why they come together, how, I don't know, structured is that? Is there sort of the the ruling class that is, uh, arch, you know, the architect behind this, like they see a place that they want and then they, what, form a mysticism about it and all of that? Um, or is it just sort of a snowball effect? Like, is it just something that happens, quote unquote, naturally? Or is it something that is structured from a top down, uh, you know, perspective or instruction? Yeah, I think the answer is both. Uh, sometimes I joke that like there's not a, the only real conspiracy is capitalism, and that kind of explains a lot of things that we often uh, we often seek more occult explanations for, but we can account for a lot just with like the forces of capitalism. But that also, uh, you know, I don't mean to sound <laughs> conspiratorial in that joke, or like I don't mean to apply it literally in that. Uh, it's more complicated than a sort of, you know, a Rockefeller or something <laughs> uh, controlling the oil industry. Uh, you know, he didn't create all of these narratives that were already in place uh, in the local areas where the oil boom began. Uh, so there's a role for, uh, you know, pre-existing like culture and society uh, and there's a continuity where uh, things are, people are very adaptive and like a new thing sort of appears and you incorporate it into your existing beliefs and practices. Uh, and also like in terms of the class analysis of these resource booms, uh, certainly middle-class and working-class people uh, saw an opportunity. And in our system, that's like 
uh, you know, it's very desirable to, and this is something that I became very interested in, uh, the search for treasure. Uh, people are often searching for treasure underground, uh, you know, pirate treasure, Indian treasure. Uh, there are all of these uh, kind of treasure frenzies in US history from the colonial period onward. And I kind of interpret that as doing the psychological work of like, you know, wish fulfillment, perhaps like capitalism isn't fair to live under, but we do hope to benefit from it. And the idea of like the windfall of treasure is kind of the idea that an ordinary person has a chance to become like a wealthy owner of capital. Uh, and so the, the pirate version of winning lottery kind of thing. Yes, it's like a pirate version of a lottery. <laughs> uh, except there's like a lot of work to dig those holes. Like they're really digging very deep holes. Uh, and like in the middle of the night, because you could only dig on a full moon or at certain times. Uh, so like all, all weather, they're just like down in these holes in the mud, uh, getting spooked by the demons that are guarding the treasure. So it's also... <laughs> uh, scary down there. All right. Well, we will hold that thought and we will come back to pirate treasure uh, right after this brief break. There's a new world coming if we can take it. What does that mean? The first part of the message is if we can take it for ourselves on our own terms. The second part of the message is, can we bear the newness and the huge expansion of human consciousness that is going to be involved? Can we take it, a new world? It doesn't mince words. It tells the good, the bad, and the ugly like it is, and it leaves a message behind. Can you do this? Do you want to? Do we have an alternative? Right now, at this point in history, mankind is either going to get a lot bigger or not. I choose to go forward. I choose to live for and in the future. I choose the future. A new world. We can take it. Available in hardcover, softcover, audiobook, and Kindle. Where is the unknown country? Is it out there? In the stars? Or is it also somewhere else? Is it in us? In you? Unknown country, join us today. Go to unknowncountry.com right now and join us. Join the questions. Join the search. Join the adventure. Unknowncountry.com. There's no place like it in the world. And we're back. Alicia, thanks uh, again for speaking with us about all of this stuff that I think is important, especially around these parts of, you know, people who are interested in the paranormal, who are interested in, um, you know, ancient mysteries and this sort of thing. Um, my take on all of it, you know, if you're going to ask about some sort of enigmatic other, um, you should probably deal with yourself first. And part of that in America is dealing with being an American <laughs> and understanding the racist roots of some of this stuff, the exploitation of this stuff, and see what mystery is left after you've uh, dealt with all that. So I think your work goes a great deal toward that end. Um, but let's just go back to something very basic. Why do they need to do this in the first place? Why make up any stories at all? Why not just take what they want and that's it? That is a good question. Uh, and I mean, I appreciate your framing, first of all, that like there is certainly mystery in the world, 
And there are certainly things that people are seeking and trying to discover um, about the past, about themselves. But it is really important to look at yourself and your culture uh, in a critical way. So I really appreciate that. Um, and it's definitely what I'm trying to do. Um, and I think that was, uh, you know, I don't have like a real like theoretical articulation of this, but I think that the spiritual dimension and the narrative dimension uh, of resource extraction has, was important in all of these cases. And I guess I hope to uh, show, not tell, perhaps, how you know individual people's experiences or the experiences of communities, uh, how important these uh, sometimes sometimes straight up myths uh, were to them in helping them do what they were doing, helping them feel like it was reasonable to do what they were doing. Uh, for instance, like looking at the oil boom, uh, and of course this was the 1860s, climate, like no one knew about climate change, no one imagined that burning oil would be a problem ever uh, in the long term, but it was extremely environmentally destructive at the site of extraction. And so uh, because of the way it was extracted and transported in barrels, they were like leaking everywhere. There were just rivers of mud and oil. Everything was highly flammable. So uh, the people who had lived there before the boom began would express sadness about the decimation, uh, you know, entire forests of previously commercially valuable timber uh, were just like clear cut uh, in this frenzy of speculation. And so the behavior uh, was manifestly to people who lived there uh, kind of destructive and a bit irrational. Uh, of course, it's rational in terms of markets because as long as investors are paying for it, then it's market logic is working. But uh, so people saw like the dark side of this and had to still believe in what they were doing uh, beyond just the idea that they were gonna make money. And so the spiritualists who were operating in that region are really telling in that regard. Uh, Jonathan Watson, who's the first oil millionaire in Titusville, Pennsylvania, uh, who owned the land uh, where the Drake well, the first commercial well was drilled, and then he bought up all of the land around it uh, and became very wealthy. Uh, he became a spiritualist uh, I believe in the 1860s. And, you know, it, his wife was a spiritualist and often there's an influence, like often wives will influence husbands to become involved in spiritualism. Uh, but he really believed in it. And it's just interesting to think about the work that that was doing for someone in that situation. Uh, because it allowed him to really believe that there was meaning to what he was doing, that he was chosen to do what he was doing. Uh, and that can sometimes permit you to do bad things or things that have consequences that you might see as negative, uh, but you keep going. And also you talk about uh, sort of that in terms of um, society at the time, giving society sort of permission to do what they want and not feel bad about it. Look at, uh, you know, indigenous people as savages claim that these structures were made by essentially what white people from some other ancient past or European from some, or Atlantis. I don't know. Is this where the Atlantis Lemurian moo type stuff comes from? So I think that emerges a little bit later. Um, I'm forgetting when that book comes out, but, uh, yeah, so prior to the Atlantis uh, craze, which I think there there were a few cycles of it. I think there may I think the first one may have been in the 1870s, 
between the 1870s and 90s. And then there's another one in the early 20th century when another book comes out about Atlantis. Um, so it's like, that's one strand of it. And the and it, they're all kind of interconnected at times. And then the strand that you mentioned of sort of the search for a lost white race uh, is often premised on some European population having reached North America by boat uh, and built the mounds that exist across the continent and then been conquered by an invading race that is today's Native Americans. And that formula, you know, has all of these different permutations. Uh, it might, depending often on uh, who is purveying the story, uh, you know, people who want uh, Nordic people to have been the first Americans will say it's Vikings. Some people will say it's the Welsh. Uh, there are some antiquarians who prefer like the Phoenicians or the Israelites. And so it takes all kinds of forms. And I think another thing that was surprising as I was doing this research was, you know, we should never be surprised that racism and imperialism manifest in US history, but it was surprising how persistent they are and how they sink down into the smallest cracks of things that seem kind of uh, obscure or unnecessary. And so oil is another example where uh, the in the Pennsylvania oil fields uh, of Western Pennsylvania and Western New York, uh, you know, there's this community of spiritualists who are interested in using uh, spirit communication to find oil. Uh, but then overlaid on that, uh, the mound builders myth appears and multiple writers uh, in that region writing about the oil boom, uh, just in passing will remark that uh, there was clearly an ancient race here before, uh, before the Native Americans that was extracting oil because we've, uh, we've seen these ancient oil troughs in the ground, these sort of log lined troughs that ancient people used to gather oil and they as soon as oil became a valuable commodity they're like oh the lost race must have built this uh hmm. and so it's the persistence of it is uh is interesting so does that mean that it's de facto theirs because their descendants made it or their ancestors made it uh, in some like moral and spiritual way, yes. And so that's the function of the myth. And it's um, when you say it out loud, it sounds almost like such a uh, blunt, literal, like psychologizing of people's motives. But it, you know, you can't deny it because it's so persistent and it just manifests all over the place. That yeah, there's like some diffuse sense of possession and birthright that these stories uh, sort of arm people with. Well, we still see this today, even with, you know, the sort of new agey stuff of like, you create your own reality and all of it is geared toward manifesting wealth. And the answer to, well, what about poor people? What about, you know, horrible tragedies that happen to people and all that. The answer to that is like, well, you chose that before you were born. You know, so this idea of, you know, masking your responsibility and in, in the world and your selfishness through like destiny and uh, privilege, essentially, <laughs> new age privilege persists to this day. And I, I also wonder you know, these spiritualists connected to oil, did they somehow transmute into evangelists of today or is that not connected? Uh, I think that's debatable. I think they're relatively separate strains that both use the same logic that you just described. Uh, and so there's a classic book called The Positive Thinkers that describes this sort of potpourri of uh, you know, spiritual leaders, uh, 
in the US and all of the different versions of that principle of kind of actualization, manifesting uh, self-help. Uh, and so there are so many different flavors of it, but there is a fundamental, you know, individualism and uh, belief in the power of thought and and willpower uh, to create reality. And uh, so that definitely, I, I wouldn't say that spiritualists invented it so much as they're just, that's the water that a lot of these people are swimming in. And so evangelical Christianity, which is also plays a very important role uh, in the growth of the oil industry, kind of has its own version of that. Uh, and, you know, it morphs into the prosperity gospel. Uh, and so it's kind of like the Christianized or like church friendly version of it. Whereas spiritualists who are having seances uh, searching for wealth are technically, you know, the church does not like that and doesn't encourage you to try to talk to the dead. Hmm. I remember there being like in probably in college, um, sort of the pseudo philosophical question of um, can you judge uh, people of yesteryear by today's moral and ethical standards? And then, well, but what about Hitler? You know, it, it always seemed to me like this would come up in the context of like justifying Hitler in some way. Like, you know, it wasn't that bad for Hitler. Like we can't judge him by today's psychology. But it seems like what you're pointing to here is uh, that people felt the same sort of um, guilt that they should feel. <laughs> about taking these places and about doing what they wanted to, that they had to come up with cover stories and uh, things to even make themselves feel okay just living here. Um, so does that answer that question? I mean, can we look at this and go, yeah, they're they're operating under the same sort of psychology that, that we know and love today? I think that it's not it's kind of neither here nor there to like pass judgment, but we do need to understand uh, what people were doing and why they were doing it and how those forces persist into the present day. And so you're absolutely right that uh, what's really a valuable thing that you get from studying history is understanding that even in that time, there were people who objected to what was happening there were people who thought it was kind of bad, but were like, well, we're going to go along with it because it's, you know, to our benefit to do so. Uh, and, you know, there were all kinds of positions just as there are today. And so nothing, uh, you know, no one's actions are predetermined, but we do also have to understand the way that social forces and economic forces uh, you know, put people in structural positions where their choices are very constrained. Um, and so, yeah, that's where it's like judgment almost becomes not a relevant term when you're trying to understand things on a systemic level. Uh, and, you know, no one, even people who we might say were uh, radical at that time, still often, you know, held racist beliefs uh, or did things that we would disagree with today. Uh, and so, you know, that's one aspect of studying spiritualism. I think uh, when academics first became interested in spiritualism uh, as an object of study, there was an idea that it was politically radical. Um, Anne Broad's book, Radical Spirits, talks about uh, the role of spiritualists in women's suffrage and in the abolition movement. and you know, that's true, like many spiritualists were politically active on those issues. Um, but as a movement, it was extremely heterogeneous and like people were spiritualists who enslaved other people. So yeah, it, it becomes very complex. Hmm. Well, we'll get into more complexities uh, in, well, however long this, this break takes. <laughs> we'll be right back. It was the quietest, loveliest evening you could imagine.
And then suddenly, uh, a group of them are coming toward him, and he gets taken outside to the back porch, where he's placed on this cot. That then takes him out to a clearing in the woods. I remember sitting in a circle in the woods, in the snow, and then I suddenly went up in the air. I felt like when you're going up in a fast elevator. I felt my stomach went le left behind, and I see the trees going by, and then I see the clouds. Then I'm in a little room, just like that. It's frightening, being completely conscious, not having control of your body, and then being shot up into some kind of ship or room. It smells like cheese in here. It's not kind of shoot, tell you the truth. It's not clean in here. And I kept trying to wake up because I obviously was not in bed. You know, it had to be a nightmare, right? And uh, I realized these creatures were there. They were funny looking. They were like the workers. And then there was this willowy kind of taller being with the great big black eyes who was the leader it felt like a woman to me I see the head real clearly are you old she says yes I'm old she's looking real close she puts your cheek up by my face I kept trying to wake up because I thought I was having a nightmare. I'm getting real scared again. I'm real scared. Because I cannot do a thing about this. Could let me smell you. I wanted to smell him because I wanted to, I was trying to get some way of telling whether or not this was real. So this one puts his hand up against my face and it smelled like cinnamon. The smell of cinnamon was grounding in one sense. It made me think that I was in a real situation. In another sense, it was extremely disturbing for the same reason. The real situation I was in was very weird and very provocative with two different kinds of extremely strange looking creatures and I was physically helpless and couldn't get away. That's when they start to perform experiments on his body. Blue ones open a box and show me this needle and they're gonna put the needle in my head. I, how I know that, I don't know, but I do. And I start to say, you're going to ruin a beautiful mind. But they put the needle in the side of my head anyway. It makes a cracking sound, but there's no pain. I thought they were gonna cut my whole head open. And we're back with Alicia Puglianisi. Hmm. I got it right this time. Uh, we're, we're talking about her book, In Whose Ruins, Power, Possession, and the Landscapes of American Empire. And uh, 
here's here's a question for you. I don't think anyone's asked you. Um, when the indigenous people um, uh, catch wind of this happening, do they start making up their own counter narratives or do they start using this, you know, sort of ability to sway people with these narratives in any way? And I'm thinking of, I don't know, just the one thing that you always see on ancient aliens type shows and ancient aliens itself is um, like these sort of ant people that live underground. And as you were talking about digging for treasure, I just thought like, what better way to keep people away from something that's underground than to tell them that like ant people or aliens or something live in this cave. Is there any evidence that that, that was going on, sort of a, a, a counter psyop from the native people? So that's a really interesting question that I haven't investigated. Uh, and I can't think of anything that I've read that's considered it in that way, uh, that there's a protective power of allowing certain incorrect stories to propagate when you say that a place is cursed or haunted perhaps at least then people will leave it alone is that kind of what you're yeah yeah that's really interesting uh honestly like i'm gonna look into that because uh there's definitely some writing um jody bird writes uh in a chapter of her book the transitive empire i believe uh about the intersection of these the, the plundering of indigenous mounds um and slavery in that uh in the antebellum period mounds in the u.s south were often excavated using enslaved labor and she uh describes this kind of it's it's like a little bit speculative, but there's also certainly evidence for it that um, the black population who lived and worked near the mounds had uh, had their own spiritual beliefs about them or understanding of them as places that shouldn't be disturbed, and for that reason, uh, you know, their labor was compulsory, but they may have like had objections to doing those excavations. Uh, and so that I think reflects maybe some of that protective power of like the widespread belief that this is a dangerous place to disturb uh, and you mm -hmm. should leave it alone. Uh, so but that's something I'll, I'll think about more. Uh, and I've, I've become very interested lately in the underground world. Uh, so in general, like I want to do more reading on that. Oh, okay. Um, did you speak with any um, First Nations peoples for this? Any indigenous people? Yes, uh, I spoke with a range of people, you know, connected with these different parts of the book. Uh, and do and they have direct answers? Like when, when you say, you know, hey, what was this for? Do they know what was like, could people have just asked them all along and instead just pretended like they didn't exist? Like, how does this even happen on that end? Yeah, that's something that I can't necessarily answer in terms of like what were, because certainly, uh, you know, archaeologists and white investigators of various stripes did ask indigenous people at times what was this for? Where did it come from? And of course, the problem is that the white interlocutors are the ones recording and writing the history. And so usually what usually their account of that questioning is that uh, this uh, native person said they don't know, or that it's just been there forever. Uh, and we don't really know what the content of that interaction, what the unspoken content of that interaction was, or even the entire spoken content, uh, or the reasons for people giving the answers that they gave. Uh, and so I think that there are uh, Native writers who, who, you know, are connected to these sites and can kind of 
reflect on it and answer that kind of question uh, in a way that is more insightful than me, probably. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I just I just wonder if, you know, it's like we're talking about people who are still there as though they're not there and forming new narratives for them and forming a new mythology for them as though they don't exist. I, I, I don't know. There's just it's mind boggling that that could survive up till now and that we could still see TV shows and books written about those mythos that are you know, you easily have debunked or, you know, found the origins of. And it just, I just wonder how that even, how does, in 2022, how does that? That question gets at the role of scientific authority in sanctioning certain historical narratives and ways of understanding the past. So uh, we... The idea that science is kind of objective and simply seeking the truth, of course, uh, doesn't account for the way that science is enmeshed in uh, the political and social world. And so uh, I think both you know, government-sponsored archaeology and archaeologists who simply have ideological commitments to U.S. empire uh, are going to be acting on the basis of that reality. Uh, and so, again, it's like this does not excuse people's actions and choices, but we it's helpful for us to understand to what extent uh, your political orientation, goals, motivations can shape the reality that you're seeing. Because they truly believed that the native peoples of North America, uh, you know, were less than human and lacked the capacities that they had. And therefore they could not have built these architectural wonders. And so there needed to be another explanation. Uh, and if even if someone from those populations were to contradict them, like it's unlikely that they would be believed. Uh, and even as, you know, certain traditional histories of indigenous groups did substantiate their connection to earthworks and mounds, those things were disregarded. Uh, and so the idea that there was like a void and simply nothing was known uh, isn't true. Uh, things were known and there were ways of finding out more that like simply weren't pursued. Um, and perhaps weren't possible, again, in the context of like protecting knowledge uh, about the Native past, it would also be like understandable if Native people did not want to explain everything about the mounds to some guy who asked them. Right. Um, I mean, is it a feature and not a bug also of these fields of study? Is Should I not be surprised? Do people who... I don't know, work on the ancient alien stuff. Are they, do they know the stuff that you're talking about and ignore it? Or do they, is it all part of the, <laughs> how racist are we? In other words, like blatantly consciously racist. How, how much of that do you think is, is actually a problem in this, in these fields? Or has it all sort of gone underground and we don't even, we need, and take someone like you to like bring it to light. Uh, yeah, I, I think there are certainly a lot of people in the academy in the social sciences who, well, in fields like uh, anthropology and archaeology, uh, you know, they took the critical turn in the 70s. And uh, one of, you know, one of the advantages of that format of like intellectual community uh, is that it is uh, susceptible to critique and evidence and change. And so, like, within those disciplines, uh, you know, now they're very interested. Like, the whole way that they've done archaeology has changed. Uh, and that's uh, a slow process, and it's definitely not an easy one. And 
it sometimes, I, I suppose, produces bad feelings among people who don't want to let go of their old way of doing things. And so uh, I think it can still be hard for people in those fields who want to do things in a more <laughs> responsible and ethical way. Uh, but I think overall, like there's been a transformation of awareness um, about the role of white supremacy uh, and imperialism in the history of these disciplines. And there's a lot of consciousness and critical work going on around that. And so I, I, I guess one question, it, it gets back to this question of authority uh, and like who you believe and why. And uh, I think that if you're inclined, it gets tricky because it's like, if you believe that the government is covering up certain things, uh, then they could be covering up anything. Uh, and so the mistrust, uh, I think, can run pretty deep. And it can also run along the track of existing uh, grievances, dispositions, uh, and kind of cultural scripts, such as white supremacy. Um, and so, yeah, another interesting thing about it is now that a lot of authorities are arguing for uh, indigenous histories of the United States and are uh, bringing to the forefront indigenous voices and trying to reconnect uh, the, you know, trying to reconnect the present with the past in that way. Uh, I've noticed that shows like, uh, you know, searching for lost giants and ancient aliens, they will look to older authorities. Uh, they will look to older scientific authorities as evidence for their claims. And, you know, I, I've seen them show 19th century newspaper clippings as evidence that giants existed. And it's like you need to understand your sources. 19th century newspapers printed a lot of things that weren't true. And so we can only use them as evidence of what someone at that time thought readers would believe and purchase, not unlike today. Uh, it's like the clickbait of the past. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> well, so in researching this, then, is there anything um, about ancient mysteries that is mysterious to you or has this pretty much jaded you? on that, or at least made you realize, well, well, you know what, if I just delve into this a little bit, I'll probably find uh, not so mysterious. Uh, sometimes I'm afraid that I come off as a little bit jaded, but <laughs> I don't think that I am. I think that... Lucky you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe, on, maybe some days I wake up less jaded than others, but uh, I think the, you know, there are mysteries of what people's experiences were like in the past, uh, what their everyday lives were like. Uh, there are a lot of things, I'm of the persuasion that like there are a lot of things that we can't know and those things are interesting and okay to think about and can be very generative, for instance, in science fiction. But the quest to know them, to master them, uh, can be destructive at times. Uh, and the less, you know, the less evidence there is, the more likely people are to fill in with bare prejudices and assumptions. Um, so it tells us a lot about our culture and our world, the things that people uh, use to fill those gaps in knowledge. But uh, yeah, I, I think sometimes they really are no good. <laughs> uh, mm. I'm trying to think of like what do yeah, I think the experience of the past still evokes a sense of wonder and mystery, uh, even while recognizing that, like, we can't always find answers. Hmm. 
And on that note, we will leave the free Dreamlanders uh, to ponder what we've talked about here and uh, go get her book, Alicia Polianisi, uh, In Whose Ruins, Power, Possession, and the Landscapes of American Empire. Um, there is a link in the description. Go pick it up. Alicia, thank you so much um, for, uh, for talking with us again. And um, let's go on to your next book. That's in secret. <laughs> I don't know why I said that in secret, but uh, let's go on to your next book. <laughs> Sounds good. Thank you for the question. Free Dreamlanders or Freelanders, as I like to call you. Uh, thank you so much for, for joining me on my inaugural episode. I hope to see you again in a month. Um, enjoy Whitley Strieber for the rest of the month, as will I. And... Uh, Thank you, Whitley, for um, allowing me a, a space on your show. Um, I don't know if this is passing the torch, but I'm going to pretend that it is. Because, so. <laughs> you know, I need to feel good about me, Whitley. I need to feel good about me. Um, thank you again to Alicia Pulianisi for doing this. Go find her at, again, aliciapulianisi.com um, or, you know, just buy her books. They're great reads. Do it. What have you got to lose? <laughs> I mean, what are you going to read? More Greer crap? Come on. Uh, <laughs> how to make friends and influence people. Ting. All right. That's enough of this. No one needs a long outro. This is long enough. Uh, I will see you next month. Actually, hey, you know what? There's a second half of this conversation where we're going to talk about Common Phantoms, a book about psychic research. I mean... If you want to see that, if you want to hear that, go on over to unknowncountry.com and become a subscriber. Uh, it's like a pittance to do that. And you have like, I don't know, a thousand years? I might be exaggerating, but something like a thousand years worth of uh, archived articles and audio from, and video from Whitley. Um, and from me. Um, and from others. I mean, it's a cornucopia. What other words can I use to describe it? It's a lot. It's a treasure trove. That's the word. <laughs> a treasure trove of mystery awaits you at unknowncountry.com. So go there, subscribe, and make it known. All right. Take care, everyone. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.